Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Here we want you to experience the grace of God. So through this sermon, we hope to come alongside you as you grow in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about New Life, please visit our website at newlifeonline.org. Here's today's message. Well, good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Kirk Bodie. I'm a member of the preaching team. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about being courageous, but let me start out with a little anecdote from my life. Um, Have you ever been challenged by somebody to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do? You didn't think you could do it, and you were challenged them, and you stepped out of your comfort zone. We're going to talk about that as we're going to go through the book of Esther, but uh, in my own particular life, years ago, I'm I'm a lawyer, by the way. That's my trade, my daytime job. Uh, uh, About 15, 20 years ago, I was challenged by our then-pastors, Bob C. and Dave Troyer, if I would take Tuesday morning out of my practice, out of my schedule, and I would meet at the church with them uh, as, and form what's now called the preaching team. And we would then review messages, we would prepare a series, we would prepare uh, messages and creative arts and things like that. And they were, they were kind of nervous about asking me to do that because that cuts into my job and things like that. There's some risk involved. Um, but I prayed about it and I answered and uh, Ever since that time, that's been what I've been doing on Tuesday mornings, Um, and it's been fantastic. Um, But oftentimes, we we one of the rare commodities in Christian in uh, church life is challenging people to step to the next level, to do something different, step out of their comfort zone, to take a risk. So we're in this study here uh, about standing on a firm foundation. And that really goes back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the man who builds his house on the rock and then the man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms of life come, the tribulations, the hard times, the guys who build his house on the rock, the firm foundation, it stands. But the guy who built his house on the foundation of sand, his house crumbles. And we want to be the type of Christians, the type of people that build our house on a firm foundation. Last week we talked about the, what I call the endangered character quality of endurance. We use James 1 where it says, Count it all joy when you encounter trials of all kinds. Um, and standing strong in times of difficulties demands endurance and perseverance. And today we're going to use another one of those what I call endangered character qualities. We're going to talk about courage. What does it mean to be a courageous Christian? Because standing strong in times of difficulties and trials requires endurance, but it also requires courage. A verse out of 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, Paul says this. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So fear and timidity is not from God. And so to be we need to be courageous people in difficult times that we're in, either as a nation, as a country, in our families, in our communities, in your marriages. Um, when circumstances that we encounter seem oftentimes endless or hopeless, or there's uncertainty as to the future, we need courage. We need courage to stand strong. When your health difficulties attack or when financial dif- problems come, dealing with relational issues like marriages and raising children and grandchildren. We need to be courageous people to face what might be crippling fears that will keep us back, that will hold us back. 
So the question is, how do we get courage? How do we get there? Um, how do we obtain this rare but necessary quality of courage? And sometimes the best way to do it is to look for a model or an example. And today we're going to look at the person or the book of Esther, the person of Esther and her uncle Mordecai. So if you want to, uh, it'll, be, it'll be on the screens, but if you want to follow along, if you want to turn your Bible to the book of Esther, we're going to cover the whole book of Esther today, so we'll be here for a couple more hours, okay? Um, the book of Esther is found in the Bible. If you go right to the middle, you're going to come to, you're going to, come to about Psalms. Go to the left of that, and you'll find the book of Esther. And uh, it'll be on the screen as well. But to give you a little background on the book of Esther, why you want to turn there, if you, if you do, is it is, if you have a chance this week, get the book. Even if you've seen it or read it and you've, and you've gone through it before, read it again. Just sit down and read the whole book. It reads like a great novel. It reads, it's full of adventure. It's full of intrigue. It's full of evil. And it's full of good. And there's, it, there's irony in it. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it comes to a climax where there's great drama. Um, it's a fantastic book. But what's interesting, too, is a lot of people didn't want that, years ago, didn't want that book in the Bible. Uh, because nowhere in the book is God mentioned. Nowhere in the book do they talk about God. But... Once you read the book, you will see the fingerprints of God all over that book. He's the unnamed hero and player in the book of Esther. Okay, so before we dive into it here, it occurs back when the Jewish people were taken from their homeland in Canaan and they were transported over to Persia and they are captives in Persia. They are exiled to Persia. And Xerxes is the king of of Persia. And Persia at this time, if you, were a, if you were a person of history, is a huge empire all the way from India to much farther west in Europe, the huge empire of Persia. And Xerxes is the king. He's also in our story here today. So we start out with Mordecai and Esther, our two main people. We'll talk about them. They're Jewish people. Mordecai himself was exiled and taken captive over to Persia. Esther apparently was born in captivity in Persia. So we start out in chapter 1 of Esther is uh, Xerxes, the king, decides to throw a seven-day feast to celebrate, I guess, a wartime victory or something. So he's going to throw this feast, and it's full of excess and opulence. And it, so let me, let, me, let me read it here, and you'll see what I mean. It says, The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, kind of like an open bar, okay? No restrictions, as much as you want. For the king instructed all the wine servants to serve each man what he wished. So this is what I've got called the ultimate frat party. Only men, there's only men there. Drinking is unrestricted. You can drink whatever you want. And it's only men. So what the king, what Xerxes decides to do at this frat party, this big feast, this drinking binge, he decides he wants to show off his beautiful wife. Her name is Vashti. And so he commands her to come out and, I guess, prayed around or show herself. She must have been a very beautiful woman. It was kind of his 
show pony trophy wife, and he's going to show her amongst the, to these drunken people at this banquet. But the problem comes because Vashti, his wife, the queen at the time, she refuses to come out. She doesn't want to be part of this male frat party going on. So the king then, since his wife didn't obey him, the king is furious. And after consulting his drinking buddies at the, at the party, he decides he's going to fire his wife and take the position of queen away from her. So Vashti is her name. Vashti is demoted. She's no longer queen. So Xerxes the king then talks to his buddies, and they suggest, why don't you start a new search for a new queen? So he embarks on a contest, a year-long beauty contest, to replace his wife as queen. So we read this in Esther chapter 2. It says, Then the king's personal attendants, that's his buddies, proposed, Let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. So here's the beauty contest. Now, enter the person of Esther. Esther, remember, is a Jew. She was, her uncle or cousin, is not sure who which it is, is Mordecai. Mordecai raised Esther from a young girl. So he's kind of a father figure to Esther, as well as being related, being a cousin or an uncle. They both were Jews, and as I said, uh, Mordecai was taken captive, and uh, Esther was probably born in Persia. Both were essentially foreigners in exile, kind of like prisoners of war. Esther, when we first meet Esther, here's what we learn about Esther. Number one, she's a Jew in a foreign land that, has, that is really uh, subjugating the Jews. And she is knocked down gorgeous. So she's chosen. Mordecai uh, enters Esther in the contest to be queen. And Esther takes part of a 12-month beauty process where they administer cosmetics and they have diet and things like that to uh, be beautiful. And it's, it's a 12-month period. And then at the end of the 12 months, out of the hundreds of young, beautiful women selected throughout this huge Persian empire, Esther wins, and she's crowned queen. We read this in chapter 2. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout all the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. But there's a secret here. We know what the secret is. Xerxes, the king, doesn't know what the secret is. Esther is a Jew. She's not a Persian. She's a Jew. She's kept it hidden because Mordecai told her to keep it hidden. But we also see, if we step back for a minute, we see the invisible hand of God throughout the whole book. We see God orchestrating events, which is one of the great themes of this book. Now, continuing on, a little side story comes up where Mordecai, her uncle, uh, discovers a plot to kill Xerxes the king. And he tells Esther, who's queen, and Esther tells the king, and the king is furious, and he finds these two guys that were uh, trying to kill him, 
and their plot is thwarted, and they're taken out and hanged. So Mordecai exposes this plot. We'll come back to that later. That's an important element here in the story. Now, enter a guy named Haman, the villain. He's the villain of the story. And when you, if you, when you read the book of Esther, you will walk away with, there's this guy. He's very, very evil. Um, but he's one of the king's right-hand men. He's one of the top officials in the country. And Haman, the bad guy, he's offended because when he leaves and, and comes back to the, t- to the palace, Mordecai, who's out there, won't bow down to him. He won't get on his knees and bend like everybody else to Haman. So Haman is so enraged and so upset that this Mordecai, this Jew, won't bow down to him that he resolves not only to kill Mordecai, but he resolves to kill all the Jews. We read this in chapter 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So here we have one of the first recorded times of genocide, ethnic purging. They're going to kill not just some Jews, all the Jews. All the Jews are under a death sentence. That's what he wants to do. So to carry out his genocide plan, he then goes to the king, who he had his ear. He lies to the king, um, spreads some ideas and rumors about the Jews, and the king, it's the king, after paying him a large, large bribe, he bribes the king into issuing a, a de- decree that all Jews should be exterminated and even sets a date. It says this in chapter 3. They sent out, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th month, 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So I love the language here. It says to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. It's like three different ways of saying genocide. Purge the land of the Jews. But then it's kind of a humorous part, right at the in chapter three, after this decree was issued, it says the king and Haman sat down to drink. I'm not sure what that's about other than these two guys were in cahoots together and Haman, the bad guy, likes to push the king around a little bit. So we find at the end of chapter 3 of Esther the terrible predicament of the Jews. You know, it's a crisis. This is where the crisis comes in the narrative here because these Jews, they're the people of God. If you go back in time from Adam, they were the promised people. To Abraham, your people will be blessed And through Abraham will come descendants, ultimately the Messiah. They're given a land. They're given the land of Canaan. They leave Egypt. They 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 leave Egypt to the Exodus. They go to the promised land. They were given a promised land. They were the people of God. And now they find themselves captives in a foreign land. And now under a death sentence. And you can imagine the predicament they see themselves in. Hopeless. No relief in sight. What about the promises of God? So now Mordecai, continuing our story, Mordecai and Esther have a dialogue. Esther's the queen, and Mordecai, he's outside the palace. They communicate with each other through writings or through servants. 
So Mordecai, he learns of this genocide plan of Xerxes. And he goes into a great mourning and grief, so, so much that uh, Esther sees that or hears about it, and, he, and she sends a message to Mordecai and says, what's the problem? Why are you doing all this grieving and mourning and, and uh, ripping your clothes and things like that? Mordecai then sends word back to Esther about and tells her about the decree to annihilate all the Jews. And then he has the audacity or the boldness to ask Esther that she go into the king's presence and beg for mercy for the Jews and plead with the king for her people. That's a huge request. It's huge because, number one, she would be identifying with her people, the Jews. She would expose herself to the king as a Jew that he didn't know about. But the second thing, and probably more important, is that she would be risking her life. Because the protocol of the day was that you don't approach the king unless he summons you. And here, Mordecai is asking Esther to do exactly that. Go to the king and ask that the Jews be spared. She, and so Esther then, after being this, getting this challenge by Mordecai to go to the king, here's what she says. She gives an excuse. She says this in chapter 4. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces, they know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. So Esther, when given this challenge, she kind of backs away with being a little timid. She's a little timid. And she gives an excuse. I can't do this. Mordecai, because to do this, I'm risking my life. I could be killed for this. But Mordecai doesn't give up. He then challenges Esther. Here's what it says. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And then he says this, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That's the challenge. Esther, courageous Esther, steps up to the plate. And she responds to this. She says this, it says, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, after three days, I will go to the king. Even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So here's our lady of courage. She puts her own life at risk for the sake of the people of God. But Esther embarks on a plan after three days. Now, and interestingly enough, she calls for uh, three days of prayer and fasting. She invites God into this, probably wants wisdom, discernment, and she embarks on a plan. So not only is this lady, Esther, gorgeous, and not only is she courageous, but she's shrewd as well. She's quite a lady. Because she embarks on a plan after this three days of fasting and prayer. 
And if you, as you read the story, you will see that it's, it's very laid out. She just didn't barge into the king's quarters and say, hey, save the Jews. She didn't do that. She embarked on a plan, a very tactful plan, to appeal to the king under the protocol of the day. So, what she does is she puts on her royal queenly attire. Now, that means she got all duded up to look very beautiful because she knows the king. She knows the king. It's her beauty that opens doors. So she makes herself be very, very beautiful. And then she goes and she makes herself visible to the king. She doesn't go in and talk to him. She makes herself visible. And it says this in chapter 5. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she just was hanging around, he was pleased with her. And here it is. He held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So here's a miracle. She's, he extends the gold scepter. That's the dramatic point in the whole book, when he extends that scepter to her. That means she's not going to die. She's accepted, and he wants to know what her request is. But she doesn't just blurt it out right away. Very tactfully, she says, well, what I, what I want is a banquet. I want a banquet, and I want you to invite Haman to the banquet. So he sets up a banquet. Now, step away from the story, because we'll come back to it. There's a little interlude here uh, in chapter 6, where it says the king can't sleep one night. Coincidence? I don't think so. King can't sleep. And in his sleeplessness, he starts to look over the records of the kingdom, says the chronicles of the kingdom, and he discovers that there was this plot that Mordecai thwarted some time ago. So he asks somebody, says, has anything ever been done for this Mordecai fellow? Because he saved my life. So then Mordecai is then honored to the humiliation of Haman. Remember Haman, the bad guy. So Mordecai is honored. They have a little parade for Mordecai, um, and he's honored. Now, back to the banquet. Queen Esther says that told the king she just wants a banquet. So he says, I have, he sets up a banquet. And at the banquet then, he comes to her again and says, what is your wish? I'll give you half the kingdom if you want it. What do you want? And then here it is in chapter 7. It reads this way. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. There she is. My people. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. So she exposes Haman's plot to kill the Jews. She identifies publicly identifies as a Jew among those people that would be annihilated. The rest of the story is Haman is exposed. Haman is hanged. On, when you read the story, you know, it's very interesting. He's hanged on the gallows that Haman built to hang Mordecai. That's the irony of the story. You know, when God writes the Bible, he does a fantastic job. I mean, it's just intriguing, these Old Testament stories. And then through a kingly decree, Xerxes issues another decree that essentially spares the Jewish people. And Mordecai is then elevated in the king's court. That's the story of the book of Esther. Now, I've got three takeaways that I want to go through quickly here. It's hard to cover a whole book and only limit the three takeaways. Um, first is this. 
Each person, that's, me, that's us here today, each person has a unique place in God's design for the world. God has put each one of us in a particular place at a particular time for a particular purpose. What is your purpose? What is it about your unique life that God has placed you in that no one else is in? Remember, Mordecai reminds Esther, he says, and who knows, but that you, Esther, have come to your royal position for such a time as this. You, Esther, are in a unique position that no one else is in. You have the ability now to do something about this problem. Why don't you do it? So we, we see here, too, is God's fingerprints are all over this book. He's never mentioned, but he, God orchestrates people, including us, people and events to take place. Otherwise, how would it be, how would a Jew, Esther, out of overwhelming odds, 400, 500, whatever it was, beat the odds of becoming the winner of this beauty pageant? What's the likelihood of that? Or that Mordecai discovers this plot that eventually is used by God? Or that the king, one night, for some reason, the king is unable to sleep at night. And he sees in the annals of the, of the records that Mordecai saved his life. Is that just something that just coincidence? Or is that the fingerprints and hand of God over events? And that the king, against all odds, when Esther comes into his presence, he extends that scepter. What's the odds about that? Or is that God, the hand of God, moving, orchestrating people and events? See, God's, it's the same God today. He's still in control. He orchestrates people. He orchestrates events. And he has put each one of us in a particular place for a particular purpose. See, each one of us is unique. We bring different gifts, talents, opportunities. In our families, for example, no one is able to speak Christ into your children better than you. We, we love kids' life, but parents... You are in a unique position that God has called you to for such a time as this. Or grandchildren. Who has a unique platform to speak into a grandchild's life other than grandma and grandpa? In your workplace. I don't work at your workplace. You work there. That's your particular place. God has placed you there for that purpose. Some of you have gifts and talents that need to be used for God. Gifts and talents that others don't have, that I don't have. God has given those to you, not just to sit on, but for a particular purpose. People have opportunities. People have positions of influence that other people don't have. So the question is, are you using those opportunities, gifts, talents, positions of influence for God's purposes? Second takeaway is this. We need courageous Christians. You know, it takes courage. That's what Esther had, courage, to live out God's plan for your life. Courageousness is an essential element, but unfortunately today it's an endangered character quality. See, Esther, when, when she was challenged, she decides, I will risk my life. If I perish, I perish. It's, that's courage. It's like Rosa Parks who says, I'm not going to go to the back of the bus, thank you very much, despite the consequence to Rosa Parks. That's courage. We're inspired by those things. We're inspired by Esther. We need to take that inspiration and become people of God that are courageous. Hebrews 10.39 says this, But we do not belong to those who shrink back, Esther didn't shrink back, and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. It may cost something to do the right thing, 
but the right thing needs to be done anyway. It takes courage to be a Christian. It takes courage, first of all, to become a Christian. For you to humble yourself and realize you can't save yourself, that perhaps your life is a mess, it takes courage to admit you're wrong and you need a Savior. That takes courage to become a Christian. It takes courage to lead a Christian life. In today's society and the culture that is very oppositional to Christian values, that advocates ideals and practices that are contrary to God's plan, it takes courage to stand up for what's right. It takes courage in relationships. To remain sexually pure in today's society takes guts, takes courage. To live a godly marriage. Marriage isn't easy, it takes courage. It, takes, it would take courage for you to go to your spouse and say, something is not right in our marriage, we need help. That's, a, that's what a courageous person does. To raise godly children. In today's culture, in today's everything bombarded by kids, it takes courage to raise them correctly. And it takes courage to open up your life to significant relationships that you need in your life. To be vulnerable to another man or another woman. That someone that will, is good for you, that will challenge you, that will hold you accountable. It takes courage to do that. It's much easier to shrink back and isolate than it is to open your life up to someone else that may cause some pain. Accountability always causes pain. And it takes courage to identify as a follower of Jesus. You know, in, our neighbor, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, amongst your family and relatives, at school, for young people to identify as followers of Christ at school is huge. It takes courage for that. We need to be Christians of courage. Esther did this. She identified publicly as the part of the people of God that she was a Jew. That's a courageous person. A third thing is this. Third and last is synergy. I like that word, big word. Synergy occurs between individual Christians and within the community of faith when they work together toward a common goals, accomplishing much more than the sum of their parts. So we need to create and develop strong relationships with other believers. God did not intend for us to travel this Christian life alone. Look at the dynamics of Mordecai and Esther. Look at the dynamics. Working in tandem. They worked in tandem. Would either Mordecai or Esther been able to accomplish what was accomplished here alone? Would Esther have gone to the king to ask to save her people if it weren't for Mordecai? They worked together in tandem. And sometimes in Christianity today, we work in isolation. We work in our own little silos. We don't work with other people. Would the three men, you know the story of the three men in the fiery furnace, would they have been able to stand firm and not bow to that idol if there were just one guy there? But there were three there. Why did Jesus send out the disciples in pairs, two by two? Because we need each other to, develop, to stand strong, to develop courage. So the challenge is to get into a community, get into a discipleship group, get into a small group, get involved in men's ministry, women's ministry, don't do this alone. Lastly, I want to say, we each of us need what I call an Esther moment or a Mordecai moment. You know, Mordecai comes to Esther when she's shrinking back. And he says, could it be, Esther, that you have been appointed and come to this part in your life for such a time as this? 
That's why you are there, Esther. That's why God placed you as queen for such a time as this. So what we need, we need more Esthers. We need more Mordecais. We need Mordecais to challenge people, to get out of their comfort zone, a grander vision, to do something different. We need more Mordecais. But we also need more Esthers. We need people who are courageous, who will do the right thing, and if I perish, I perish. We need both. That's what the life of the church should be. That's what's sometimes lacking is in each other's life. You know, I was challenged by Bob and Dave to commit Tuesday mornings to preaching team at some financial cost. Uh, about two years ago, Daniel Cushman, Chad DeWeese, and I challenged a group of men to commit to a one-year intensive discipleship process. And about eight guys answered the bell. We went through one year. Started, we finished, just finished our second year of guys that we challenged that they would commit to a one-year intensive discipleship program. I learned before I even spoke today about Ken Ryder, okay? His wife shared with me his story. Ken was an accountant. You know Ken, sitting right there in the blue shirt. He's an accountant working for Heinold Banwert in East Peoria. And his boss, Marshall Heinold, decided that Marshall and his wife were going to retire and go into missions. And they challenged Ken and to retire early and go into missions. Ken and Joanne answered the call. They spent years in Brazil ministering to people. And many, many, many people's lives are changed because he was challenged to step out of the comfort zone of being an accountant in an accounting firm to do something grander and having a grander vision for God. We need Marshall Heinolds. We need Mordecai's to challenge people today and we need the Esthers to respond to that challenge. So, where do you need to step into someone's life and challenge them? Where do you need to be a Mordecai and challenge them to a higher level in their walk with Christ? Where do you need to be Esther? You're in that place. You need courage. You need to take a risk for God. You need to step out of your comfort zone, get off the bench, get in the sidelines, and to live and enjoy your life with God on a higher level than you are right now. Let's pray.